Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host today, Susan Denneker from Steptoe & Johnson PLLC. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening around the world, we are also fortunate to have the chance to dial in our local ELA lawyers that practice on the ground in these jurisdictions and are working daily to help their local clients move through these difficult times. On the program, we span the globe and we have received updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we are going to be chatting with a member from Florida. Joining us again today on the program is Sarah Reiner, shareholder at Gray Robinson. You may recall that Sarah joined us a couple of weeks ago to provide some insight on what to expect regarding an emergency temporary standard from OSHA regarding COVID measures for employers. Now that the emergency temporary standard has been released, Sarah will be providing further insight on what the guidance entails for us today. Welcome back to the program, Sarah. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, and thank you for having me again, Susan. I appreciate it. Well, Sarah, I'm excited to talk to you again, and I think our listeners are going to be excited to hear what you have to say. So we were all waiting for a long period of time with bated breath, right, about what OSHA was going to do with regard to COVID rules. Were they going to come out with an emergency temporary standard? We thought that that was going to happen quickly. It didn't. You told us last time that you thought it was still coming, and in fact, you were right. So we were speculating about what was going to happen. Now that we actually have something that's been issued, tell us, were there any surprises and what did OSHA actually do? You know, it's funny. I think they heard our podcast and <laughs> then turned around and issued the ETS. It came out on June 10th. And so I think we're all still kind of digesting it and digging through the details for our clients and everything. But there are definitely some surprises in it. And then some of the things, you know, that we talked about during the prior podcast that, that we kind of expected. So to begin, we questioned kind of what industries this may apply to. And I think that in potentially a nod to the fact that people were questioning the emergency nature of this thing, the ETS is limited to the healthcare industry. So it doesn't apply to manufacturing in general or the restaurant and hospitality industry, or anything like that, it is limited to the healthcare industry. And it goes into detail in terms of defining who is and is not going to be covered. And we can talk about that here in, in, in a bit more detail in a moment. Well, Sarah, before we go there, let me ask you this. What are the key requirements that are in this emergency temporary standard that's been issued for OSHA for the healthcare industry? Well, it deals largely with and is focused on, of course, protecting employees who have not been vaccinated. Now, some will say, well, if they're choosing not to be vaccinated, then that's a personal choice. And, you know, why should so many others have to jump through the hoops? But we think that OSHA kind of looks at this as, you know, it's charged with protecting individuals in the workplace, regardless of those circumstances and personal choices. And so that's why they potentially went forward with the ETS. In terms of its key areas for protection, it starts with something that we were anticipating, and that is a COVID-19 plan for each workplace that an employer has. And the plan needs to be tailored to the specific workplace. Now, 
if you're a healthcare employer who has three or four different offices that are basically staffed the same, operate the same, that kind of a thing, then you can break it into groups and you can create one plan that's going to apply to you know, a group of offices or certain kind of operational parameters. And so it, it does allow for a little bit of movement there. But in terms of this plan, I think it's important to first note that it's a plan that has to be in writing if the employer has more than 10 employees. So for anyone who may be listening, if you're in healthcare and you have more than 10 employees, this plan is a requirement for you and it must be in writing. And to kind of reel it back or roll it back a little bit here, you know, this applies to all settings where any employee provides healthcare services or healthcare support services. So healthcare services are those that are provided to individuals by professional healthcare practitioners, doctors, nurses, emergency personnel, oral health professionals, different things like that. And then healthcare support services are services that facilitate the provision of healthcare services. So it may be patient intake and admission, patient food services, and different things like that that are you know, associated with and in close contact with the actual provision of healthcare services. And those definitions are more specifically laid out in the ETS. So I would urge employers to look at those definitions and determine whether or not they fall within those categories. It also applies to embedded clinics. So although this may not apply to the manufacturing industry in general, if you are an employer, for instance, a governmental entity who may operate an in-house clinic for your employees, this rule will apply to the embedded clinic that is actually administering care. It's also going to apply to first responders and other healthcare personnel who are actually administering care outside a healthcare setting. So there are lots of little tricks and definitions in here that we think it's important for employers to go over with their employment council to determine exactly how this applies to them and the scope to which it applies to them. So that's going to be very important. And then again, what we said is, you know, the first big catch there is the COVID plan. So that is where an employer should initially be focusing. So Sarah, those are all good points. Something that you and I talked about last time when we were kind of crystal balling what an emergency temporary standard might look like, you said very accurately that you thought that anything that got issued from OSHA was going to be industry specific. As you've mentioned, this ETS is limited to the healthcare industry, although you talked about how that can be pretty broadly defined if you've got embedded clinics or other things. But if you are an employer in another industry that isn't healthcare specific, is there guidance from OSHA with regard to COVID measures that you need to be paying attention to at this point? Absolutely. There is additional guidance from OSHA for other industries that was just issued and it is available on OSHA's website, and they have quite a few resources there. And again, it focuses on protecting employees in the workplace who are not vaccinated. And it focuses on, again, planning and preparing in-house for how to manage and contain the spread of COVID 
and eliminate, if possible, the spread of COVID amongst employees and visitors and patients and things to your workplace or customers or clients if you're not talking about healthcare, of course. The interesting thing about the ETS is that it goes beyond when you're, you're circling back to healthcare. Obviously, OSHA thought it was important enough to not only say to an employer, look, we need you to put in place a plan and it needs to be a written plan, but they go through great detail in the ETS in terms of advising the employer of what must be included in the plan and talking about designating safety coordinators to ensure compliance, defining areas based on vaccination status if necessary. So OSHA actually specifically states that if you are going to have vaccinated individuals returning to the workplace and you are going to designate an area for those individuals where they can, for instance, operate without certain maybe PPE requirements or something of that nature, then your plan has to include policies and procedures to determine vaccination status. And that is something that a lot of employers are struggling with, whether or not they ask employees about it, how they ask, what kind of documentation they require. So this is something else that employers are going to have to factor in along with all of the other guidance given in the ETS regarding the different settings in which controls must be used. The ETS goes so far as to require monitoring of points of entry and screening and triaging. You have to develop and implement policies and procedures regarding transmission-based precautions, PPE requirements. There are requirements outlined in the ETS for when a COVID-positive patient comes in contact with people physical distancing, physical barriers, cleaning and disinfection, ventilation in buildings, health screens. And then, of course, there are also in this ETS anti-retaliation requirements and record-keeping provisions and things of that nature. So it is extremely detailed. There's significantly more material that we could cover in terms of of, uh, what the ETS contains than we have time for today. But I did want to give you just kind of a taste of all of the different topics and requirements that are set forth in the ETS. And one another thing for an employer to pay attention to is if they are covered, it also does require paid leave for vaccination purposes. So that's important to note as well. Well, there are a lot of complicated issues with this ETS, Sarah, and we appreciate you helping us to try to summarize it and break it down. You know, you did such a good job last time of answering my crystal ball questions that I'm going to ask you another one. And we touched upon this when we talked about last time. I think that we probably can always expect as lawyers that there will be a legal challenge to almost everything. And this is probably no exception to that. So assuming that there is a legal challenge brought to the ETS, how do you expect that it will fare? So absolutely, Susan, there is continuing debate about whether or not this is a valid ETS and specifically whether or not an emergency exists at this point in time to justify the ETS. As I mentioned previously, that is part of why many think OSHA narrowed it and and just limited it to the healthcare setting because there is a perception that there is certainly more risk in the healthcare setting to individuals who practice and deal with patients and individuals on the front lines there. But, you know, there are questions regarding timing of the release, 
There are also questions now that we have a vaccine and it is being administered you know, across the country. Some say that not even 50% of the population is probably going to end up getting the vaccine. Once it's all said and done, we probably won't reach the 70% herd immunity. And so yes, there's still an emergency. Others say yes, but look, we still already have significantly dropping death rates. The severity of infections isn't as significant as it was in the beginning. And, you know, an interesting point that was raised by a colleague of ours the other day was, you know, the government hasn't mandated a vaccine. So, you know, how can it also turn around and say there's an emergency necessitating this kind of rule or use of vaccine in the workplace if the government isn't itself mandating it? But in any event, yes, that is still a debate. And I think we'll just have to wait and see exactly whether or not a legal challenge arises. But in the meantime, Before we end, I I did want to cover one additional thing, and that is timing, because timing can be everything when you're dealing with an agency bent on enforcement and who has just issued a new emergency temporary standard. And the ETS has very specific requirements in terms of timing. And in fact, there are certain sections and provisions that are required, you know, as of the date of publication or within 14 days of publication, or within 30 days of publication. So it is a quick trigger in terms of enforcement. And I would strongly urge that employers reach out to their counsel to go ahead and put in place those procedures that they need to so that they are in compliance when those deadlines kick in. Sarah, that's a critical point, and I'm so glad you made it. Employers do need to be paying attention to these deadlines so that they are in compliance with the current ETS. Well, Sarah, once again, this has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for your time today and your expertise on this subject. Susan, thank you so much for having me today. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to connect with Sarah, please click on her bio in the description of this podcast. Also search the ELA website at ela.law, where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers and content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Susan Deniker. Thanks so much for listening.